Let's bow together. As we go to prayer, I just want to refer back to the scripture John just read a couple of moments ago in Hebrews 4. Just listen again to what it says here, just as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, just in a moment of just concentration on Christ and who he is and what he's done. Again, Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You know, I was thinking about that as, as he read that and just sort of contemplated those words. Jesus has, there's a sense in which Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens twice. Once he came from heaven to earth, that's what we've been celebrating so much here this morning already and what we continue to celebrate in the weeks to come but, but he came and did that, and then he did what he came to do, and then he ascended, passed through the heavens once again from earth back into glory. And, and, and the amazing thing, the mind-blowing reality of both of those things is that Jesus Christ did both of them for us. He came to earth for us to live and to die and to rise again. He ascended back to heaven. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven for us. And that's what we've just sung, that therefore by his blood we can come. We can come into the throne room of grace. We can find mercy and help in time of need. And fathers, we contemplate these thoughts. Lord, just a moment of contemplation is not nearly enough. Lord, as we sang even in this song, a thousand years, a thousand tongues are not enough to sing your praise. Father, to contemplate what you've done, what your son accomplished on our behalf, and the fact that for some crazy reason, everything about that plan had to do with rescuing us from the penalty and the power and the the presence of sin. Father, we thank you this morning, those of us here who know Jesus Christ, that we stand before you. Father, not of our own merit and not of our own accomplishment, but by grace alone, we stand before you as forgiven and accepted in your sight. Father, we know we're not perfect. We know this week we have not lived perfect lives. We haven't always walked where you would have us walk. We haven't always spoken as you would have us speak. We haven't always done what you would have us do. And yet we're here because we're yours. And to whom else can we go? Jesus alone has the words of life. And so, Father, as we come into your presence today, as we have sung your praise, as we have heard what you're doing in other parts of the world, and, Father, my heart was stirred as as that was done to realize that you're doing exactly what happened in the New Testament. Churches are being planted, and now those churches are reaching out with the gospel. Father, so many still need to hear. Father, we celebrate the fact that your gospel continues to go forth and to sound forth in the world today. And Father, my prayer is that in these next few moments together, the gospel might once again sound forth here. Father, that as as I speak to my brothers and sisters, as my brothers and sisters listen to what uh, is in your word today, Father, that we would not be listening to the voice of a preacher and reflecting on one individual's insights or ideas or responses to the text, but Father, as the scriptures are opened and as they are proclaimed, we pray as always this morning, that we might see Jesus. Father, for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit. We know he's here. That's the promise of your word. But Father, we want you to know that our hearts are open and, and that if they're not, they need to be. And so we ask your spirit to move in a personal and powerful way in each one of our lives, that he would come even now and guide us in truth, that he would enter into this place even now and guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, that your spirit would deliver us from all of the baggage we carried in with us today that threatens to to cover our ears and blind our eyes and harden our hearts, sweep it all away. Father, so that in these few moments together, we might see the Lord Jesus. 
May we see Jesus clearly this morning, Father, as we go to your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, we want to leave rejoicing with hearts once again that have been set free, reminded of our freedom in Christ. Father, rejoicing because we got to sit at the feet of Jesus. Your word tells us he loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again. And so we worship him, we praise him, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're sitting down, as always, we'll allow the boys and girls to head out to Children's Church if they wish to be part of that this morning. While they're walking out, I want you to turn quickly in the scriptures, if you will, with me one final time to the book of 2 Thessalonians. To turn in your Bible this morning to 2 Thessalonians, where today we are going to finish our study, our sort of off-again, on-again look at, uh, at the, uh, the, the two letters that Paul wrote a long time ago to the church at Thessalonica. And I've got to be honest with you as you're turning here, and I want to read the text right away, so please go ahead and make your way there quickly if you can. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But you know, I, I had a tent, I, uh, as we were singing this morning, all these incredible songs of Christmas and the birth of Christ, I got to admit, I was, I was sort of confronted with a tension that I didn't have when I first arrived here this morning, and that is with all this beautiful language and story of Christmas, what in the world am I doing preaching? what I'm about to preach to you in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It is going to feel to many of us, myself included, like a hard left turn. And, and what in the world does this have to do with it? And then it sort of dawned on me as we were singing those songs as we continued. You know, we are not yet to Christmas. We are in a season that is called Advent. Advent is a season of waiting. We are waiting for the celebration of the birth of Christ. But you know, it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. It's an anticipative, if I can create that word, use that word, waiting. That is, there's some stuff that's supposed to be going on during this month leading up to Christmas of preparation. And so if there is a connection to be made between what I'm about to share with you from God's word this morning and the season we're in and all these songs we've been singing, it is that. It may well be that this morning with what we are going to look at, and I'm going to tell you up front, a hard teaching in God's word. It may be that for some of us, perhaps in some way all of us here this morning, that God wants to use what we're about to see to prepare our hearts to truly be ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So with that by way of of sort of trying to connect the dots here, introduction, I'm going to begin reading the final portion of 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to begin in chapter 3, verse 6. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, the end of the book, verse 18, and I'd ask you to follow along closely where this is what the Word of God says. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we, when Paul says we, he is talking about himself and his ministry companions, Silas and Timothy. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. 
anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark at every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now as you know, hopefully you know, if you have been here for even some of our study in First and Second Thessalonians, you know by now that in these two letters, the Apostle Paul has spent a great deal of time dealing with matters of what we call end times prophecy. He's talked about the return of Jesus Christ. He's talked about the day of the Lord. Just a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter 2, he gave us several specific signs people could look for to know whether the end of the world as we know it was, in fact, drawing near. Lots and lots of talk about end times prophecy. But here, in what we've just read in God's Word this morning, Paul turns his attention from future things, end times prophecy, to what I would call a present tense problem in the church at Thessalonica. And that problem was the presence, our Bibles translate the word several different ways, the presence of idle or unruly members in the local church congregation. And, and despite the fact, at least it has seemed this way anyhow to me as I've read the passage, that what he says here sort of seems tacked on. Again, it's all this stuff about end times prophecy. Now he wants to take issue with, with some people who are a problem in the church. There's sort of this sense when you first encounter it as if Paul sort of, well, as long as I have your attention anyway, here's something that's really under my skin. I just want to get it off my chest before I close the letter. It sort of seems that way. I would actually have you know that having now read through it several times, I believe nothing could be further from the truth. Because what Paul deals with in these 12 or 13 verses this morning is in fact something he has dealt with, he has addressed with this same church family before. If you turn the page back to 1 Thessalonians 4, I want you to do this with me very quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4. You find in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he'd written this letter maybe a couple of months earlier. He told the whole congregation, brothers, make it your ambition, each and every one, to lead a quiet life, to take care of your own business, work with your hands, just as we commanded you. There's an instruction. He then follows up a chapter later, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, uh, because apparently he may be aware that some people are not heeding the, in, the, the instruction he gave there. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, those who are not doing what we said in chapter 4 as well as encourage the faint-hearted, helping the weak and being patient with everyone. So what we're looking at here this morning in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul has touched on a couple of times before. It's also significant that this isn't just some sort of tacked-on material. This isn't just something Paul's getting off of his chest in any way, because the fact of the matter is this, when you add it up, just simply doing the math, after, second only to everything Paul has already said about the end times and prophecy and all that sort of stuff, the fact of the matter is this, no other single issue anywhere in First and Second Thessalonians combined gets more ink or time or attention than what we're about to read. This was a big deal to Paul. What he had to say here was a very big deal, and there's actually a case to be made that the two things are connected. His discussion of end times prophecy and the present tense reality of idle or unruly members in the church. Because a lot of scholars believe, and I think they're probably right, that 
that the Thessalonians, again, and, and this is context, you have to have been here sort of to be able to connect all these dots quickly, but one of the problems Paul was addressing at Thessalonica was many people in the church had fallen under the delusion that the day of the Lord, the end times, had already come. That maybe Jesus had even come back and they had missed it. And if not, they were convinced that any moment he might be coming back. Now, there's a sense in which his believers were called to live that way. Expectancy, imminence. Jesus could return at any time, but what it's believed that had done at Thessalonica is because they believed Jesus' coming was so near, a lot of them had quit their jobs. A lot of them had stopped working altogether in the community, maybe even in the church. They had stopped living productive lives, and they were essentially sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back and part the clouds. Well, he's coming soon anyway. Why break a sweat, right? Let's be ready when he comes. But in the meantime, you do have to do things like, say, eat, right? (laughs) You've got to have a way to pay your bills and feed your family. And so what we believe happened at Thessalonica is that these idle, these unruly, these passive members, because they were sitting around doing nothing and they had quit their jobs, they were not contributing in a constructive way in any form, they had begun to lean on, to depend on, and ultimately to begin to leech off of the wealthier, still active members of the congregation. And I would submit to you that is a recipe for disaster in any church. You've got one segment. It's not that they can't work, it's they won't work. But we expect everybody else, we want to live off their charity, those who are still living active lives. But before we dig into what Paul had to say to them and about them, I want to make sure very, very quickly that we understand exactly the kind of person Paul is talking about here, okay? I want to add just in two minutes' time, work through the question, who were these idlers, who were these unruly members that Paul was thinking of or speaking to here? Let me tell you three quick things about them. Number one, the first thing about these people Paul has in mind, uh, I'm referring to them as idlers, not I-D-O-L as in idol worshipers, but I-D-L-E, people doing nothing. The first thing we need to know about them is they were in fact true believers in Jesus Christ. If you look at verse six, he calls them brothers. If any brother, verse 6, parenthetically sister, is leading an unruly life, hey, we need to talk to and about them. He's talking about true believers in Jesus Christ. And the the term he uses to describe them, unruly in verse 6, you go down to verse 11, undisciplined, it's the same uh, Greek term in those two verses, 6 and 11. That's literally a military term. It came out of the, uh, the, the military language of the Greek era. And, and it literally referred to, in that context, disorderly soldiers. Those who had gotten literally out of line, out of order. But it is a term that had become useful in the common culture or used to describe people who'd gotten out of line morally, spiritually. They were living unruly spiritual lives. And in this case, Paul specifically has in mind those who were violating the very first command God ever gave humanity before, by the way, sin entered the equation, which is to work. Right? In the Garden of Eden, the first thing God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You thought your job was a product of sin. It is not. (laughs) It may feel that way some days, but it is not. Work is the first thing God called us to do, and there were people in the church who weren't doing it. It's not that they couldn't, it was that they wouldn't. 
Paul's talking about such people. In verse 11, he calls them busybodies. That sounds kind of maybe like a silly little term. It wasn't. Because the third thing we need to know about these people is he's not just talking about people who weren't tending to their own business, but the Greek term here for busybodies literally means meddlers. It means people who were into everybody else's business. I'm not doing what I should be and, and where I ought to be. I'm dealing with other people's stuff. So here's the bottom line. Here's what I want you to catch as we dig into what Paul is going to say to these people. He is talking, listen closely, he is talking about Christians who are not doing the holy things they should be. He is talking about Christians doing unholy things they should not be. And they know better. Any Christian, here's a summary, he's talking about any follower, any believer in Jesus Christ who's living as if they don't really know him, as if he has no part in their life. Christians who are living like they don't know Christ. And and that's why I believe, and, and maybe I'm stepping out on a bit of a limb here, and maybe you disagree. If so, let's talk after church, all right? But I believe because that's the case, because he's talking about people who should be doing one thing and they know it, but they are doing something else instead that we can broaden what Paul says here. His specific message to the idle, unruly members of this congregation I believe we can broaden what he says here to any true believer in Jesus Christ who's living like they don't know him, who is out of line spiritually, biblically speaking. I think there's a bigger lesson here for us all. And and when you examine that in the context of this study, readiness, remember, ready or not, readiness is the theme of Thessalonians. Here's what I want to deliver to you in the time we have left. I think there are, Paul is telling us in these 12 or 13 verses, there are at least three things that every unruly believer ought to be ready for, okay? If you're going to live an unruly life, if you're going to get knowingly out of line, spiritually, biblically speaking, there are at least three things Paul says you're going to have to be ready for because in God's design, they're coming your way. Number one, the first one is this. First thing Paul talks about in verses 7 through 10, he says, if you are a believer who lives an unruly life, If you choose not to do the holy things God calls you to do, but unholy things you should not, biblically speaking, be doing, you should prepare, number one, for a sense, a spirit of inner discomfort. There is going to be a spirit, a sense, in your life of inner discomfort. Now, those of you who, like me, grew up watching Sesame Street, all right? Anybody like me that grew up watching, maybe your kids watch Sesame Street? You remember, I'm sure, the classic segment, one of these things is not like the other, right? Who knows what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's four squares on the screen. Three of them have something that is exactly like the others, and one is different, all right? You've got three letters, the letter B, and a number, the number four. You've got three white eggs, and then there's a brown one. You've got three footballs, and then you have a carrot. One of these things is not like the other. The song says one of these things doesn't belong. Paul is saying essentially the same thing in verses 7 through 10 of the final chapter of 2 Thessalonians. That's his message because his point, and he is so bold as to use himself as an example, is that an orderly Christian Life And by orderly, we mean one that is being lived, not perfectly, but in holy, joyful, willing obedience to Jesus. An orderly Christian life is supposed to be, repeat after me, normal. Say it loud. 
It is normal in the body of Christ to be following Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. To the extent that someone who isn't living an orderly Christian life, who is not seeking, however strongly or weakly, to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, anyone who isn't ought to, in the context of the church, stand out as very, very different. There should be a distinction between those walking with Christ and those who aren't. It's what he says in verses 7, 8, and 9. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But not only did we do our ministry with labor and hardship, we worked night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. We set an example. Not because we had the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so you would follow the example we were setting. So I think in a very practical sense, here's sort of what Paul's saying here. And this is directed toward those who might be living an unruly a disobedient Christian life, knowingly so. Paul's point is this, all right? We're going to get real personal here. Paul's point is that if you look around the sanctuary on Sunday morning, as you look around your circle at small group, as you sit at the table, maybe in a Bible study that you attend, and you feel in your gut or your heart a sense of discomfort, there's, maybe it's even bordering on resentment, It may not be because everybody else in the room is a stuck-up, holier-than-thou Christian. It may not be that everyone else is the problem. It may be that God's working on your heart. That pressure, that resentment may be there because God is dealing with something. Because again, a joyfully obedient Christian life is normal. And when you're not living one, there should be a distinction. There should be a difference in what you may be feeling in those moments. And perhaps we've all felt it to some degree. Is what the Bible calls the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Calling you back to Jesus. Calling you back into the fold. Calling you back to himself. It may very well be that the inner discomfort any one of us feels by not fitting in in the context of our church family, may very well be the thing God is trying to use to get your attention before you do more damage to yourself or anyone else. Inner discomfort. Paul says if you're living an unruly life, if you're heading down knowingly that path of disobedience, be ready for it. It's going to come your way and you have to decide how to respond to it. It's the first thing he says. It's not the only thing he says. He says there's a second thing as you move on to verses 11 and 12. So that anyone living, any true believer, knowingly, willingly living a disobedient life, in some respect or in every respect, first of all, prepare for a sense of inner discomfort. Second of all, and these are not necessarily sequential, these may all happen at the very same time, prepare yourself for, secondly, some challenging conversations. Paul says you better be ready to be confronted with some challenging conversations. Because next... In verses 11 and 12, and I want you to look at them with me. Paul doesn't merely call unruly Christians out. He does that in verse 11. Here's what he says. We hear that there are some among you leading an undisciplined life. In other words, word not only got around the church, word got across the continent, all right? There are some people in the church not living for Jesus, and they know it, not following him doing no work at all. They're acting like busybodies. But he doesn't just call them out. 
He also directly confronts them in verse 12, at least as directly as he can from a distance. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to get back to work. (laughs) Get back to what you know you're supposed to be doing. In this case, get back, he says, to working in a quiet fashion and eating your own bread. Now, Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't sort of drop the hammer here because he was some sort of heavy-handed autocrat, you know, because he liked exercising power and pushing people around. It's not why he did that. In fact, everything Paul says in those two verses and really in the rest of this context is something he learned from, of all people, Jesus. Because <laughs> Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18. I want you to hold your place here and go to Matthew 18. We're just going to look at it for, for a moment. And I want you to hold it there because we're going to come back to it again. What Paul says here came straight from the lips of Jesus. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about, in advance, how to deal with a brother or sister in Christ who goes astray. Again, we're, not, we're talking about somebody who knows what they're doing. Or maybe they don't, but they need to be, it needs to be brought to their attention. And it's clear that what they are doing is disobedience to God's word. Jesus says, here's what you ought to do. If your brother sins, verse 15, Matthew 18, 15, excuse me. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Give him a call, drop by, get together. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Praise the Lord, amen. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. People who know what's going on, not just people off the street. People who care. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, if it doesn't work at that point, Jesus goes on. And we're going to look at what he says here in a couple of minutes. And and see where else it goes from there. But the point Jesus makes, and then Paul restates, is that when any one of us, even if it's me, even if it's you, gets willingly and persistently and sinfully out of line, unruly as followers of Christ, we have every reason to expect some challenging conversations will come our way. There can be some people who want to talk to us about what we are doing. Now, there's a right way to go about those conversations, and the Bible's very clear about that as well. But they should be done humbly. They should be done graciously. They should, at times, when necessary, be done tearfully. And over and over again, the New Testament tells us to speak the truth in what? Love. Not anger, not, not, not vengeance, but speak the truth in love. As we plead with our wayward brother or sister, not merely stop doing bad stuff. That's not the message. The message is run to Jesus. Look at what you're doing and get back to Jesus. Stop doing the bad stuff because you're doing a lot of harm. But that is under the greater umbrella of be reconciled to Christ. If a brother or sister is going astray, somebody has to talk to them. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. And that's the message we bring in grace. Be reconciled to Christ. Now let me ask you a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hand for this one. Who thinks that's easy? Who thinks that's fun. Anyone who would raise their hand in response to that question has obviously never tried, because I'm here to tell you it's not. Had to do it many times, have those kind of conversations. They're never easy. They are never fun. They are always challenging. They are always difficult. It is a challenging conversation in both directions for the recipient as well as for the initiator. But here's something else I can tell you from personal experience. There's nothing like the joy. There's nothing like the relief that comes when you go to a wayward brother or sister and they do repent. What did Jesus say? If he listens, you've won your brother. 
What great language. You've won him back. Back to Jesus. Back to yourself. Your sister. They have come back. There's nothing like it. In other words, what I'm saying, just again, in keeping with what Jesus and Paul are saying here in concert with one another, is such challenging conversations are worth the effort. But here's something else I can tell you from personal experience. Challenging conversations don't always work. They don't always yield the result you want, at least not the first time, maybe not the fifth. And when they don't, we do what Jesus said here. We do what Paul says here. We go in private. They don't respond. A couple of us get together because we love them, and, and they don't respond. Paul says there's a third thing that an unruly believer ought to expect. This is the way that it is supposed to go. Thirdly, altered relationships. It will alter the nature of your relationships in the body of Christ. Again, hold Matthew 18, but go back to 2 Thessalonians and look at verse 14. Here's what Paul says. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and he's speaking on the authority of Christ. This is not Paul on a power trip. If anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. In other words, know their name, know who they are, and do not associate with him so that he, so that she will be put to shame. Now let me say something. (laughs) All kinds of wrong gets done under the banner of verse 14. (laughs) All kinds of wrong. It always has, and it still does. And most of the wrong that gets done under the banner of this, if it were put in a file, the file would be labeled, they screwed up, we're throwing them out. Seriously. This is what a lot of churches, a lot of congregations have done. Somebody goes astray, well, we don't want them here, they're going to infect everybody else, get out. That's what Jesus said, isn't this what Paul said, right? Well, not really. In fact, let me say as emphatically as possible, that's not what Paul meant, throw him out. It's not what he meant. Because here in verse 14, let's get technical one more time. When Paul talks about not associating, this verse is translated a number of different ways from Greek into English, not associating, when he says, don't have anything to do with an unruly fellow believer, he doesn't want, everybody say he doesn't want, He doesn't want us to shun them. He doesn't want us to run to the other side of the street when we see them coming. Don't make eye contact. Don't let them know you saw them. Just keep going your way. Pretend they aren't there. Not what he wants. Nor does he want us to hate them, to berate them, to humiliate them simply as a way to sort of show them what they're doing wrong. Put them in their place. He doesn't say that. Instead, this this language here, do not associate have nothing to do with what it literally means is this. Don't keep company with them. Don't keep, that's what the word literally means. So what does that mean practically speaking? It's my understanding of what that means. It means if you've got a brother, it may be your best friend in Christ, a brother or sister in the Lord, who is willfully, persistently, they have been challenged in the right kind of way already. What they're doing is wrong and they know it and they don't want to change What that means is this. You don't hang out with them. You don't go to lunch with them. You don't have them over for coffee, go to a movie with them the way you've always done before. You don't do it. The relationship changes. Unless, and here's the caveat, and I believe this is a a, a faithful, accurate, biblical addition to that statement. Unless 
your stated primary unshakable purpose when you get together with that person, first and foremost, is to call them back to Christ. Hey, we go to coffee, but we're going to talk about Jesus. We're not going to talk about the kids. We're we're not going to talk about the weather. We're not going to talk about sports. It's not going to be the way it used to be because there's a problem here, a destructive problem. And we can get together, but we're going to talk about the problem and what Jesus wants. And and what that means, it doesn't mean your relationship with that person is over, but it does mean it's not the same. It's altered. Biblically is what we're called to do. Now, as I thought about it, there's a couple of ways we push back against that. And I'm going to give you the extremes, and you can, everything else falls, I think, in between uh, these two extremes on the spectrum. Some people, I have to think, hear that and go, oh man, that's so harsh. That's too harsh. I think that's one pushback. I think that's one objection. After all, wasn't Jesus all about loving people unconditionally? After all, you're a sinner too. Who are you to judge, right? Too harsh. You can't treat somebody that way and expect they're going to get right. Okay. Jesus did talk a lot about love. Here's the other extreme, the other pushback. It's too soft. It's not tough enough. Just going to hang out with them to talk a little bit about Jesus. No, 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 no. When people screw up, they need to know it. They need to feel it. They need to know they can't get away with it, and we've got to impress that on them. After all, didn't Jesus say something about treating them like tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, he did. What do I always tell you? When you're reading the Bible, if you're going to quote the Bible, context is king, right? Better know where Jesus said that and what he was saying before we throw it out. Guess where he said that very thing? Matthew 18. Go back to Matthew 18. Here's what he said. And in Matthew 18, what Jesus says here, let me just say this. Jesus not only, he doesn't merely sort of chart a middle path between it's too harsh and it's too soft, and sort of Jesus gives us the just right in the middle. No, Jesus gives us instruction that overrules it all and answers every objection. Here's what he says, Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, you went by yourself. You went with a couple of others, faithful, prayerful, humble believers. If he refuses, she refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. You make it an open issue. And if he, because, why? Because we want the church to join us in saying, this is the way we're going to deal with this person, as Jesus says. And if he refuses, here it is, to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There it is. Tax collectors, the worst of the worst in ancient Israel, right? Nobody was more hated than tax collectors. Nobody was thought to be filthier sinners than tax collectors. Let me ask you a question. What is the message the one and only primary message that every Gentile tax collector and sinner needs to hear more than any other on planet earth. You know what it is? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. A tax collector needs to hear the gospel, right? A Gentile, in this case, that's a reference to a non-believer, needs to hear the gospel. You know what a wayward believer needs to hear? The gospel! I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear it every single day. If I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and I can be reconciled to God. That's how you deal with a tax collector and a sinner. You preach them the gospel. Because they may be a believer, but they're not living like one, and they even remember what they believed in, and they agreed to in the first place, which is Jesus covers all my sins, and he calls me to live a holy life. That's how you deal with a tax collector and a sinner. You preach them the gospel. 
The point is that we should keep relating to unruly believers. We just don't relate to them the same way we relate to those who are walking in the light. Why? Because the distance and the tension and the truth, if we're doing it God's way, of an altered relationship, uh, you better believe can be a powerful catalyst for turning somebody's heart back to Jesus. Because it ain't going to be the way it always was. It can't be. Because sin is in the equation. Isn't that Paul's message in verse 15? Back to 2 Thessalonians. I promise we'll stay here the last few minutes. 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Don't regard him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a sister. So the third thing an unruly believer should be ready for is altered relationships. Now those are some heavy things, right? <laughs> those are three very heavy things to be on the lookout for. That, that, that sort of inner discomfort, challenging conversations, altered relationships. That's a heavy thought for an unruly believer to be pre- preparing themselves or to be aware of. But let me offer you an equally heavy thought. An equally challenging thought straight out of this text, which is this. The only way any of those things happen The inner discomfort that comes from seeing the example of other believers. The challenging conversations calling you to be reconciled to Christ. Uh, The the altered relationships that Jesus says have to happen if someone won't repent. The only way any of those things happen is if those who are walking in step with Jesus, what? Do them! The rest of the church has got to do them. In obedience to Jesus Christ. The only way it happens, if those who are not perfect but seeking to walk in step with Jesus are willing to do the fearful work, and it is fearful, of graciously calling a brother or sister back. What am I saying? I'm saying that all of this stuff, the need for readiness, runs both ways, and it actually begins with the church. That's exactly what the passage says. Paul doesn't address this passage primarily to the unruly. He addresses it to the the ruly. I don't know what's the right word. The, (laughs) The obedient. He says, verse 6, we command you, brothers, here's what you're supposed to do. For you yourselves know, brothers, verse 7 is what he says. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined lives. 14 and 15, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction, you take special note of them. Yet you don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as A brother. Maybe that's why Paul said what he did in verse 13. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary of doing good. It's hard, but it's worth it. What am I saying? I'm saying it all comes down to whether or not those in the church who are seeking to walk with Jesus recognize the problem are willing to do the hard work that Jesus calls us to do so that we might all walk together in holiness and joyful obedience. And in the final three verses, I promise we're going to do this in two minutes and we'll be done. Paul tells us finally in the last three verses what a faithful church can expect if they will do so. It's the last thing this passage says. What, what can a faithful church expect? Can't expect that a person is going to repent right away. Can't expect that they're going to repent ever. But what can you expect? Here's what Paul says. Verses 16 through 18. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It's a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul is saying, if we will do the things he says in this passage and in the rest of this letter, we can bank on two things. Number one, enduring peace. Enduring peace. It won't be easy, but there will be peace. There will be 
peace. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Secondly, abundant grace. Grace for the moment. Grace for the trial. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He will sustain us. He will empower us. He will comfort and grow us as we follow Christ in joyful obedience. And that's why the big idea of the message of this passage this morning is that Jesus uses adversity. And we know this, but we need to repeat it. Jesus uses adversity. In this case, the adversity of unruly members, sheep going astray inside the church to transform all of us. Jesus uses adversity to transform us all into his image, into his likeness, into deeper, richer, joyful obedience that we might become deeper, more devoted servants of the Lord. He uses even this kind of adversity to make his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, as we, as we think about what your word says, as we recognize even in looking at it that maybe you've brought some very specific issues and circumstances and maybe even a a particular brother or sister to mind. Father, we need your grace to be obedient to the whole counsel of God. We need your help. We need your spirit to be obedient to all that the scriptures say. Father, not a one of us welcomes anything like what this passage says, but it comes our way. And you call us again in keeping with the theme of these two letters to be ready. Father, may we be ready to do what you ask, when you ask, as you ask, and until you stop asking. That Jesus might be glorified, that Christ might be magnified, that wayward brothers and sisters might be won back into the fold and into our fellowship. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning and seal them to our hearts and move them to our feet. And take everything else and just let it slide, all the stuff of the flesh, so that we leave seeking and savoring Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.